This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, August 24th, 2022. I'm Kyle Kellums. The largest county fair in Arkansas continues today in Fayetteville. The Washington County Fairgrounds are open into the evening tonight, and the fair continues through Saturday night. On our show today, we hear a bit from the new season of the KUAF-produced podcast Undisciplined with Karee Banton. Theater Squared is starting a new season with the sci-fi musical comedy It Came From Outer Space, based on the 1953 film based on a script by Ray Bradbury. We'll have a preview. And that new mix of basketball and art on Dixon Street explained. First, let's explain where that proposed ballot measure that, if approved, would legalize recreational marijuana in Arkansas stands. The Arkansas Supreme Court is allowing that voter-initiated question that would legalize recreational marijuana for adult use to appear on the November ballot conditionally. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich explains. In late July, boxes filled with petitions signed by nearly 193,000 Arkansas voters supporting industrial cultivation and sale of recreational marijuana were lugged into the state secretary of state headquarters for validation. The measure aims to change the state's medical marijuana law, known as Amendment 98, to accommodate recreational marijuana production and distribution. If passed, adults 21 and over could legally possess up to an ounce of industrial-grown pot. 19 states have legalized recreational marijuana so far. Eric Agee is co-counsel for Responsible Growth Arkansas, which is sponsoring the legalization campaign. There was certainly a lot of interest in seeing it on the ballot uh, as indicated by the number of signatures that we received on our petition. Only 89,151 valid signatures were required to appear on the ballot, well over twice that amount was delivered. Next, the two-page-long ballot title and popular name had to be scrutinized by the Arkansas Board of Election Commissioners for clarity and any omissions. Commissioners unanimously voted to reject it, saying numeric limits of THC or tetrahydrocannabinol in edibles, the main psychoactive compound in marijuana, are not cited anywhere in the ballot title. Cannabis products are required to be tested and labeled for amounts of THC and CBD, cannabidiol, a popular natural remedy. But Erica Gee says the ballot title doesn't need to include that detail, the rationale outlined in the proposed amendment's text. In the ballot title, which is a summary of the entire amendment, um, we identified the sections of Amendment 98 by number that were changed by our initiative and um, identified what was what was replaced. Like, and so in, in this particular case, the issue that was identified by the election commissioner was that um, a section of Amendment 98 that placed a limit on the dosage for THC for edible products, we identified in our ballot title that that section was being repealed and another section was being repealed, and it was being replaced with um, additional information about um, not having packaging and advertising that was attractive to children, and also a direction to ABC to enact rules um, on these issues. In other words, Responsible Growth Arkansas seeks to repeal the 10 milligram THC limit under Amendment 98 for medical marijuana to allow the state ABC Alcohol Beverage Control Board to reimpose new limits. Back in 2016, a majority of Arkansans supported a voter ballot initiative to legalize medical marijuana one of 38 states to do so. And so far this year, Arkansas patients have purchased $158 million at local dispensaries, generating more than $32 million in tax revenue. Arkansas election commissioners were also concerned that investors in the recreational marijuana marketplace with less than a 5% interest in a cultivation license would not have to submit to background checks, claiming this will attract criminal activity, which Gee and Stephen Lancaster, lead counsel for Responsible Growth Arkansas, dispute. So now it's up to the Arkansas Supreme Court to decide, Gee says. They have orig original jurisdiction over this. It's not even an appeal. It's, a, it's an original action in the Supreme Court to determine whether the ballot title is sufficient. And you're right, it's not a question of what the content of the amendment is. 
that's a completely separate issue. The ish only issue at this point is whether the ballot title fairly summarizes the amendment. And um, under the court's precedent, um, we more than meet that standard um, to, to be transparent, to be clear, to give voters um, a sense of the impact and the scope of the amendment and, and what it is they're voting on. In the interim, the proposed initiative will be printed on polling place election ballots conditionally to meet a strict ballot publishing deadline in case the Supreme Court gives it the green light. We expect to have a decision by the Supreme Court in early October, if not before. So uh, voters will certainly know well before Election Day whether or not their vote will count on this particular measure. Um, the, the court ordered uh, the Secretary of State to place it on the ballot conditionally to ensure that it is actually included on the printed ballots. So, um, because otherwise it would miss the deadline um, to be included on the ballots. Uh, so it is pretty important to have it on there um, while the court is deciding whether or not the votes will count. Responsible Growth Arkansas so far has raised nearly $3.3 million to fuel its recreational pot campaign, paid for mostly by Arkansas medical marijuana cultivation industry donors, who stand to profit if the measure passes by also supplying the state with recreational marijuana. For the Arkansas Adult Use Cannabis Amendment to pass... In the upcoming November 8th midterm election, a simple majority of voters will be required. Also on the ballot, however, is a referred measure by the conservative majority Arkansas legislature to obstruct progressive voter-initiated ballot measures like this one, requiring a 60% voter approval. Arkansas is among five states a selection cycle with the voter-initiated recreational marijuana ballot items. And a month ago, a federal bill called the Cannabis Administration and Opportunity Act was introduced in the U.S. Senate. If passed, it would remove cannabis from the Controlled Substances Act schedule, in effect decriminalizing possession and licensed commercial production of marijuana, leaving it to states to regulate. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. The Arkansas Department of Health reports more than 1,100 new cases of COVID-19 in the most recent 24 hours of reporting, an increase by 84 cases over the previous day's report. There is good news that the number of people hospitalized in the state because of the virus dropped by 17 patients to 303. Nine additional deaths from COVID-19 were included in yesterday's report. 11,870 Arkansans have died from the disease. Republic of the Marshall Islands health officials are reporting a growing cluster of COVID-19 infections for the first time since a global pandemic was declared in March 2020. The Pacific Island Archipelago is 1,600 miles from northwest Arkansas, which is home to the largest legally present Marshallese migrant population in the world. Eldon Alec, Council General for the Republic of the Marshall Islands, based in Springdale, says he's greatly unsettled by the COVID outbreak back home. My initial reaction was uh, kind of scared. Because, you know, I know what COVID can do to people, especially Marshallese people, uh, knowing that uh, we, there are a lot of Marshallese that, are, that have underlying disease. Indigenous islanders pre-colonization subsisted for centuries on tropical fruits and fresh seafood. Foreign occupation, as well as a decade of U.S. nuclear bomb tests during the Cold War, destroyed that way of life, leaving much of the population immune compromised. A disproportionate number of Marshallese migrants, 5,400, according to the Arkansas Department of Health, have tested positive for COVID-19 during the pandemic, 76 Pacific Islanders have died. Alex says things are better now with nearly 80 percent of Ozark Islanders vaccinated against COVID, far above the state average. And they are responding, he says, to the outbreak back home. Our president back there declared a state of a national disaster in a proclamation. And I, I shared that with, uh, with our friends and partners here in Arkansas, our businesses and the government. We've been blessed with a lot of people. Be- They've been donating a lot of PPEs. Referring to personal protective equipment, masks, wipes, and sanitizer donations. They were just enough to cover the main two islands of Majuro and Kwajalein. But uh, they need supplies for the outer islands. And, uh, you know, I don't know how long will this thing be in the Marshall Islands, this outbreak. But uh, I've already sent some boxes uh, through uh, air freight. 
air cargo due to Marshall Islands. I've sent over 10 boxes already. But uh, we still have a lot of supplies that uh, we cannot send on the plane and sanitizers. And so we're, we are trying to uh, maybe ship them on a boat over there. Hopefully they'll get there soon enough. PPE and cash donations for medical supplies can be dropped off at the RMI Consulate at 800 East Emma Street in Springdale. You can also call 419-9332. UAMS-based Marshallese physician Dr. Sheldon Ricklin, along with Hawaiian physician Dr. Wilfred Alec and Philmar Mendoza, a Marshallese nurse, emailed in response to this report that they recently deployed to the RMI to respond to the outbreak. Their mission is sponsored by the RMI Ministry of Health and Human Services. We'll follow up on their journey upon their return. Oh, it's so wonderful to be here in a library. (laughs) It's a live Ozarks at Large Roots Festival broadcast Friday at noon. We're back after three years. We have a full hour of music from Roots Festival musicians and much more Friday at noon at the Fayetteville Public Library. Hello, everybody. You ready for a beautiful weekend of music? Yeah. Us too. One, two, three. And this year we're in the new Library Event Center with three times the room. Join us for free at the Fayetteville Public Library at noon Friday for the first live Ozarks at Large Roots Festival broadcast in three years. If you can't be with us in person, join us right here, 91.3 KUAF, Friday at noon. Yeah, this is, I'm telling you, this is my favorite place to be. Hope to see you there with us Friday. Today is the season three premiere of Undisciplined, a podcast collaboration with KUAF, Ozarks at Large, and the African and African American Studies Program at the University of Arkansas. Hosts Dr. Karee Banton and producer Matthew Moore are starting off this season talking about mental health. They welcome Joy McGowan to the conversation. Joy is the host of another KUAF podcast, Resilient Black Women, and she says that she was seen as a trusted counselor and listener at an early age. I had a lot of people who would just share really personal things about their own personal trauma, mainly about sexual abuse that they had been through. And I remember just having to wanting to tell them to tell someone other than me, because at this time I'm like 11 or 12 years old. And obviously, what can I do for you? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's something right. That means that they felt safe enough to just say it to me. And I remember just wanting to wanting them to know that they needed to keep telling their story and they had to tell it to someone who could help. Um, That's, just as much as I could say at 13, whatever years old, of like, someone else has to know because this is not fair. This is not right. So this is in Chicago? hmm Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I remember doing that. And then I remember growing up, I either wanted to be a therapist or a lawyer. Where did and you get the idea for a therapist from? Because, because of hearing other people's stories and because growing up, I had a black woman who went to my church who was a therapist herself. Really? And I think that was the only black woman that I knew growing up who was a counselor. Um, and I knew that she had seen some people in our church. Um, I had never personally seen her for anything, um, but I, I just remember her and I knew that she was a therapist. So to know any other way. There's no other way I would have known that mm-hmm. if I had not seen her, right? And so oftentimes what we say in our communities is that representation matters, right? Yeah. I mean, there's so many stories. Like, And she must have been given a lot of help that you saw was useful to people. And you're like, mm-hmm. I want to be like her. Mm-hmm. Well, it wasn't sure. an abstract idea. Yeah. Anymore. Right. right. Uh-huh. It, it pinpoint to something. So it's that it was that or, or being a lawyer. But just this idea of wanting to to advocate for people um, because of hearing all these stories of abuse. I remember wanting to support teens who would be caught up in the juvenile system. And I've seen a lot of that just in my family mm-hmm. of just young people being in the system and out of the system. And so knowing that I wanted to be a part of that. And, I mean, Chicago, from what we, you know, people, the stereotypes that people have about Mm -hmm. Chicago, you know, and we know that there is a longer historical background to that. But when you think back on it now, did that, growing up in that kind of community, kind of just prepare you for this kind of position? Yeah, I mean, I would say... 
I really feel like it's just like my family mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. I would rather speak to like my family life than like the community of Chicago as a whole because I, I felt like growing up, I did a lot of work in communities like Cabrini Green, Mm-mm, which yeah, the project, basically yeah. no longer exists. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if I can honestly say that like I am from com- a community like Chicago, mm-hmm. um, the way that people think about Chicago now, right. which has lots of violence and um, lots of uh, death. Like you would probably say that communities like that are probably in a constant state of grief um, and probably not very much aware of it based on how often they see people die. And so I would say for me, uh, growing up in my family and just seeing a lot of different things in my family, I know that I felt more drawn to this work of counseling because of like my own trauma experience and wanting to I think in my own therapy that I've done as an adult, I've noticed that I was trying to be the help that I never got growing up that I didn't know or think that I could give to my family um, growing up. And so it makes sense. So the things that I do now working at the domestic violence shelter, it makes sense when I think about my family history and the things that I've done um, makes a lot of sense that like I was trying to work out my own my own work. Yeah. I, I mean, the little bit that I've read about therapy is like people give what they want, you know, I wish they had. Yeah. That they wish they had. Yeah. Well, and so growing up as a black girl, and so you went off to college? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Where I did went you off go? to college. I went to Trinity International University, which is one of those PWIs, a predominantly white institution. And then I went to grad school there, to, so the Trinity Grad School program. Um, and then from there, my husband and I, we got married and we moved down here to Arkansas. Um, so I've been practicing for the last eight years doing therapy. Um, and while I was in Illinois, I was running the domestic violence shelter. Um, and that would have, I would say that was my dream job. I've always wanted to work with um, women who have been in situations of abuse. Mm. Um, so by the, at that point, I just felt like this is all I've ever wanted to do. I don't want to do anything else. This is oh, great. Wow. And, and so, and with that, I got to do a lot of advocating for women in the courthouse. We got to help women fill out domestic violence um, orders of protection, which is like a 22 page document oh my goodness. that you're supposed to be able to fill out all by yourself at the courthouse if you need an order of protection from your partner. Um, and so we got to do a lot of that um, advocacy and stand up with them in court and all these things, right? So like both of my dreams got put into one, really, of I saw myself being a lawyer um, and still got to get some some hmm. experience with that in small ways. Wonderful. So I guess your background, um, your expertise in racial traumatic stress, what is that? Yeah. So the research, the research would say that racial traumatic stress is something that the body cannot metabolize. So you think about stress, we think about stress raises the levels of cortisol mm-hmm. in our bodies, right? So research says that the more cortisol that we have, if it doesn't metabolize in our bodies, it turns into things like glucose and glucose turns into things like what? Diabetes, high blood pressure, all these things, right? Which tend to impact. Hold on. Yep. This is is stress (laughs) that is turning stuff into glucose. And then that's how we get diabetes. Yes. Yes. Which so when you typically think about communities of color, we are the ones who have the highest rates of what they say are preventable diseases. Mm -hmm. Right. So so stress is a big deal. Now you add on that special little phrase, racial Mm -hmm. (laughs) traumatic stress. Um, It is a thing that research would say that your body doesn't know how to break down, mainly because stress is okay if it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. If your body can predict, okay, I know how this started. I know when this is going to end. We'll be okay. So some good stress, like for a test is good, right? When your students have stress for their test, they're they're okay. Test is going to be over. Yeah, we'll come be and fine. go. Yeah. Yeah. Racial stress doesn't actually end, right? I wake up black. I go to sleep black. I'm still black. <laughs> I'm not going to stop being black one day. And when we think about our system of how racism has infiltrated every social system that I have to make contact with just to survive, it never goes away. It is not something that my body can say like, okay, you don't have to worry about this today. You don't have to worry about that today. It's okay. You can just be black today or you can just be joy. You can just be most of the time, we're always thinking about what part of me I have to bring to the table mm-hmm. when I get into different situations. Right. So this the code idea, switching. 
this idea of racial traumatic stress. You're, you're watching the anxiety of watching out. Doesn't like, you know, I have to put on my professional voice. <laughs> I have mm, to put on yeah. all that voice. So, you know, Matthew, my um, partner here, he's a white man. Mm-hmm. Does he have racial traumatic stress? So I would say he probably doesn't think about being white all the time, though. Do I you? very rarely think about being white. We probably don't think about, like, what I have to do. You don't if I'm see in this white setting. people doing foolishness on TV and think, I oh do. my God, they're embarrassing me. I do, but I don't associate that with their whiteness necessarily. Yeah, what do you associate it with? Their other environmental causes, whether it's lack of education, lack of, uh, you know, socioeconomic opportunities. So whiteness is not the first thing that comes to mind. Very rarely. Whereas for black people, it's like, Yeah, it's so communal. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Stop it. (laughs) I see you. I see me. Yeah. I see my cousin. I see my aunt. I Mm -hmm. see my brother. I I saw Trayvon Martin. I saw my brother. I couldn't stop crying. Yeah. The only time that I think I'm ever hyper aware of my whiteness is when I'm one of the few white people in a room. Mm -hmm. Right. Outside Mm -hmm. of that, Mm -hmm. I don't. I don't think about it all that much, honestly. Mm-hmm. Are you stressed out when you're the only white person in the room? I'm not stressed out, but I'm very conscious that mm-hmm. I'm that I'm that I'm the outsider in the room. I remember um, I was living in St. Louis when Michael Brown was shot and killed, and I went to some of the protests. A lot of them would start uh, with conversations in churches. And so I would go with some of my friends who were also white. We would go into these black churches in Ferguson and we were the four lone white people in a room of 400 people. And in that moment, you realize that like, this isn't the church I'm used to. This isn't the the call and response that I'm used to. This isn't the talking while the preacher is talking that I'm used to. <laughs> um, in that moment, I was I was very conscious of my whiteness. But on a day-to-day basis, no, not at all. You can hear that full conversation in the Undisciplined feed wherever you normally get your podcasts. Undisciplined, produced by KUAF and Ozarks at Large. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. The second annual Fort Smith Film Festival is a feast for film lovers. Nearly 140 movies from more than 30 countries, nations, and tribes will be on display. The festival, all contained inside Temple Live in downtown Fort Smith, begins Friday evening with discussions hosted by the Cherokee Nation Film Office, Arkansas Cinema Society, and others. The festival, sponsored by the River Valley Cinema Society, then shows films from morning to late night on Saturday. Yesterday, the executive director of the Fort Smith International Film Festival, Brandon Chase Goldsmith, came to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. He told us the response to the call for films this year was impressive. What we received was uh, we got uh, 364 submissions from 51 different countries. And then what you do, because we learn, because every year, this is our second year, you learn from the first year. So the first year, it was just four of us watching as many films as we could. This year, we got about 30 screeners to help us watch all the films. And so what you do... You have all these films come in, and then you get the screeners. And so I try to get three eyes on every single film. And what we were able to do is we um, we had about 136 hours of film come in. So yeah, so trying to get people to put three eyes on that many hours of film was a feat. But we did it, and from that we were able to reduce the films down to about 52 hours from uh, from all of our screeners. And then from that. It's what I call movie Tetris. <laughs> so as you see here, we, we have a, the program put together. The way that you have to pick the films for the program is you're putting the movies into blocks. And so the way our festival comes about is it, it grows organically from the films that we get. So I don't know what categories we're going to have until we know what films we have. And so it's, it's, it's a fun way of kind of doing it, but also a frustrating way because you have to build the program as it comes. And then we have, we're going to be showing films in four rooms in Temple Live. And so you're regulated by time. So each room only has so many hours. So what happens in what I call it movie Tetris is because you'll be putting the, the schedule together and that's how you pick your films because you're going, I need a six-minute comedy that I got to put in this slot right here. And so that's kind of how you build a program in, uh, around for 137 films. When putting this together, as you mentioned, this is the second year, how did you or whoever you were working with decide international is the way we want to go? 
So in our beginning discussion, so what we did is we started the River Valley Film Society. So the whole idea was just trying to kind of, you know, get film going down in, in the Fort Smith area. And what we realized is the river on the other side of that river is the Cherokee Nation. So that river is an international border. And so that's why one of our main categories that we have is indigenous films. And we're actually going to have the Cherokee Nation Film Office. We partner with them. They're going to actually be speaking on opening night. And so we see ourselves. And also Fort Smith is an international town. There's like they have dozens and dozens of languages that are spoken in the high schools. So it kind of brings out all the people in Fort Smith. And the other thing is there really isn't an, I don't think there's another international film festival in Arkansas. I think the most um, challenging role for you and your partners and your colleagues is the respect. You mentioned watching all the films, getting three eyes on the films. It's not just watching the films. It's giving them attention, you know, evaluating them, critically thinking about them, and then deciding whether they're in or not. Mm-hmm. That yes. sounds like a lot. Oh, yeah. It, it, it's quite the process. And and that's one of the things that we learn and we're trying to get better at every single year is, is, is figuring out what that, that process is. And it's some of the things of trying to figure out how we want to curate, right? And so, we, as I said, the, the festival comes about organically. So, like this year, we have new categories that we didn't have before. So we have an LGBTQ plus category that that's what the films came in. So that came to the surface. So it's like, if this is what people are, are bringing us, then let's show those off. You know, we, we got, a, you know, of course, a Western category <laughs> and one that we weren't able to do last year. And it's kind of really anticipated this year. We got a thriller film category. Mm. And so, yeah. And so you kind of look at and that's the thing. The films themselves dictate what the festival is going to be. So it's not such a heavy hand on it. Like I think some festivals put a really heavy hand on, on what they're going to do. And, and by having that organic process, sometimes you're really surprised by what you get. And I love those surprises. I imagine another challenge with an international film festival is you're asking people from filmmakers from around the world, maybe can you come and talk about your film? How many filmmakers will you have here? Uh, well, we'll have about well, – right now we're getting our list together. We're going to have about 80 filmmakers. Unfortunately, it's still – you know, travel and sure. COVID times, it's it's hard to get people from uh, other countries. We were trying to get one group from Canada. They're, I, I think they just now said they're not going to be able to make it, but we were trying to get them in. But that's one of the things that I'm working on. So when for the second year, first year, <laughs> we were just like, let's make a festival happen and survive. This year, we're, we're looking at trying to make not only the, the moviegoer experience, but the filmmaker experience better. And so that's why the first year we had it in multiple locations around downtown Fort Smith. This year, we're doing it all in one building and, and in four rooms. And so not only, you know, it's the middle of August, so <laughs> we realized that a lot of people got stuck in one venue. Mm-hmm. Now they can go upstairs and downstairs and, and they can put. So nice thing about having the program and doing that is it's like, remember the old days where create your own adventure? Oh, yeah. This, yeah. Is, this is a create your own movie experience because we're showing films from 10 a.m. to 11.45 p.m. in four rooms. You get to go through the program and any kind of film that you can imagine, genre that you would like, it's going to be playing. And you can put together your own movie going experience. So that's one way to kind of help out the movie goer experience. But at the same time. We had so last year we had the filmmakers were in the different venues. Now they're all going to be in one venue. What happens when you put filmmakers together? They have conversations, and those creative conversations are what I'm really looking forward to because that's where new projects are born. One thing I love about this is the most expensive ticket, the VIP ticket, is thirty bucks. Yeah, yeah. I want to make this accessible because you know, in bringing the world into the River Valley, into Arkansas, I want to make sure that people can afford to go to it, that it's not something that there's a the barrier of price to come see these films. So our our general mission is $10 in advance. So one $10 ticket gets you access to 137 films. It's $15 at the door. And then we have our, our $30 VIP ticket. But here's the thing. So everyone wants to know, what do you get with a VIP ticket at a film festival, right? And so what's different than a film festival than going to a concert? In concert, they have a VIP section, right? Well, when you you're watching a movie, you want to be able to pick your seat. So what we do is we allow the VIPs to go into the room first and they get first pick of their seats. And on top of that, you also get like the typical VIP, you get access to the filmmakers and the actors and all that. And so, you know, and, and it's, as I said, we're trying to up up our game in terms of movie going experience. And that's one way that we're doing it. All right. So representation, I think more than 30 countries, nations, tribes. Mm-hmm. Give me a, 
as much as you can, like a list of you've said Ukraine, we've got Cherokee Nation. Um, I mean, we got we got films from Africa. We have Iran, Spain, uh, which really interesting. We've got a bunch of films from Italy. But what helped with that is uh, we partnered with last year, our first year, with Cisterna Italy, which is a sister city to Fort Smith. I actually traveled to Cisterna Italy last year, which was absolutely crazy because it was three weeks before the festival started. And I went out of the country and I was a judge in their film festival. So what we do is we kind of go back and forth. And now they're judges in our film festival. I'm hoping to be able to bring them here um, in one of our festivals. But they judged our international film category. And so what we try to do is not only have films that are coming in from all over the world, but we're trying to get the judges that kind of match that, right? And so it's, it's beautiful just to, you know, I'm learning the names of country by <laughs> seeing the stuff that comes in. And it's, a, yeah, it's a, when you get that first list of, because we had 51 different countries that came in for the, the initial. I've been on search committees when you've had three great candidates. And the hardest part is telling the two really good candidates they didn't get the job, even though they were great, mm-hmm. right? You've got to pick one. What's the process for telling filmmakers, sorry, not this year? Yeah, um, that's tough. Um, (laughs) It was actually kind of interesting because, um, you know, what I try to do too is I try to respect my my judges and my screeners, right? And I was putting the program together (laughs) this year, and I was like, man, where's that one film that I liked? And I started going through the program, and I was like, Oh, it didn't make it in there. I was like, oh, goodness gracious. So even it hurts me when I see a film that I love that didn't make it in there. And then I went and go and looked and... I was like, oh, it's 28 minutes long. It probably didn't – because it made the, the initial cut of the, you know, the, the, the 51 hours, but it didn't make the final cut of the 41 hours. And, mm-hmm. and then, you know, you just, you, you just, you're just honest with people. You just say, hey, man, thank you, or, or ladies. I mean, we have, we have a ton of female uh, filmmakers that have, have submitted stuff. And you're just like, thank you for, you know, giving us and sharing your work with us. And, you know, hopefully next year, you know, we can, we can fit you into the schedule. It's just, yeah, it's, 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 it's heartbreaking on both sides. Congratulations. Get some rest if you can. <laughs> and, uh, let's catch up afterward. For sure. How it went. All right. I, I appreciate it. Brandon Chase Goldsmith is the executive director of the Fort Smith International Film Festival. The festival, sponsored by the River Valley Film Society, is Friday and Saturday at Temple Live in downtown Fort Smith. You can see the program guide and learn about the unique awards given at the festival at fortsmithfilm.com. And in one minute on Ozarks, a sci-fi film from 1953 is inspiration for the next Theater Squared production. We get a preview of It Came From Outer Space just ahead. On the final episode of KUAF's limited-run podcast series, The R Word, we hear more from a community conversation of black Christian leaders on the response from the white Christian church to racism in northwest Arkansas. The thing that I see time and time and time and time again is that there's this sense of wanting to do just enough, Um, but really when it is behind the scenes, when it comes to actually doing the work that creates the lasting change, what we tend to do is to side with power, convenience, and comfort over doing what is right. The conclusion of The R Word, available now at KUAF.com and anywhere you get your podcasts. This is Ozarks at Large. The 1953 film It Came from Outer Space wasted little time jolting theater goers. A bombastic score is punctuated with a flaming meteorite sweeping right into the movie patrons' laps. The film was lightly regarded by mainstream reviewers when it was released nearly 70 years ago, but its barely concealed paranoia has struck a nerve with fans since. This is Sand Rock, Arizona, of a late evening in early spring. It's a nice town, knowing its past and sure of its future, as it makes ready for the night and the predictable morning. Ah, but who really knows what's coming? Aliens? Communists? It came from outer space may seem cheesy with seven decades of hindsight, but there are some pretty interesting themes considered as well as some B-movie budget special effects. More about that initial meteor in just a moment. The cheesiness, the 1950s sense of existential worry, and the 1950s sensibility 
are all in the new stage adaptation of It Came From Outer Space, opening tonight on the Theater Squared stage in Fayetteville. Plus there's music and dancing and moments intended for laughs. The production debuted at Chicago Shakespeare Theater this summer, and its T2 run is a co-premiere. This week, we invited Laura Braga, the director, and Christopher Calais Jones, who plays the character trying to tell townspeople what's going on in Sand Rock, John Putnam, to our studio to talk about the play. Laura Braga says fans of the original film will recognize elements of the stage play. I think we've tried to capture a lot of that in the production that we're doing um, in a couple of different ways. One is that we've really tried to blend that sort of 50s uh, scrappy aesthetic of uh, of how the practical effects work. You know, very early on in the movie, a meteor comes in and it is very clear that it is on a piece of fishing line. And uh, we embraced that. <laughs> so you will see how we do all of the tricks. Um, and that's kind of the fun and intentionality of it. Uh, but I also think that there's something really interesting about the story, which is that, uh, you know, this is Ray Bradbury's only Hollywood treatment that got made. And uh, he was so interested in otherness and how we treat people that we uh, we think of as unlike ourselves. And I think that that's very deeply explored in the play too, but in through this lens that is both really silly, like painfully silly, um, and really contemporary. John Putnam, the character, at least in the film, right, we see this through his eyes. He's mm -hmm. kind of the everyman, and people don't believe necessarily what he's telling them. Does that as well happen here? Yes. I think, uh, I mean, I think in addition, when I think of an everyman, I think of, you know, like a like a Tom, Tom Hanks type. I think that we, we actually is kind of like an uberman in this in a little bit. He thinks he's very smart, very intelligent. He's going to answer all of the uh, questions anyone has. Uh, you know, he's from the big city. Uh, and he's very, very uh, uh, full of himself in a lot of ways, um, and in some charming ways. Uh, and so he's trying to uh, re uh, relay to everyone the danger that's involved, and he just does it in a way that comes across as uh, a condescending and uh, in a way that people are not super uh, – excited to accept. Uh, but unfortunately, he's also right. So he has to kind of like fight through the fact that his approach is not working with these people, um, uh, with these wonderful like townspeople and, and try to also get to a point where we can hopefully save the planet with a lot of zany shenanigans. There's music. Lots of music. So what's interesting about this is that Joe and Kellen, our writers, have sort of tried to triangulate this thing, which is one-third their modern sensibility and comedic zaniness. They wrote this great play called Murder for Two where one person plays uh, the detective and the other person plays every other suspect and both play piano and it's zany is the best way to describe their aesthetic, I think. Um, so bringing that in with, as we talked about, that 50s sort of rough movie sensibility and then this – what was it to do a 50s musical, right? What is they, – they keep calling it Pajama Game with Aliens, which I love. What is the official – is this a premiere? Is this a co-premiere? I've seen it labeled different ways, the origin of this – do you know? <laughs> I, do, I, I believe it's a co-premiere. It's, okay. you know, we, we, we've technically done the show once before just a few weeks ago uh, in Chicago. Um, but it was always the plan to do it uh, there and kind of get it up and running and then to tweak it. And it you will see things that were not seen in Chicago uh, at uh, Theater Square because we have made changes uh, and added and taken away some things to kind of streamline the show. So it's kind of exciting to be able to put it up uh, in this incredible space that allows us actually a few more things that we weren't able to do in Chicago. What's it like to be part of a show as it's evolving into its... For me, it's the dream. I, I love working on new things. I love being the first person to tackle something. I love working with a creative team, uh, including Laura and our incredible uh, choreographer, Del Howlett, um, people who are uh, incredibly creative themselves. And we're all just... With a show, again, I hate to overuse the word, as zany as this, we're, we're throwing everything up against the wall and seeing what sticks and then just kind of scraping away until we have like the funniest and punchiest and uh, most meaningful take of whatever it is that we're looking for. Uh, and that's an incredibly fun process as an actor. You're not just trying to uh, adapt your performance to something that's already been put up. Same for a director? So exciting. 
terrifying but exciting. Um, no, it's 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 wonderful. Uh, I love being in a room with so many funny, smart, uh, talented people because the ideas are there's a multitude of ideas, right? And so it just becomes for me about listening and then saying. 10% of that, 50% of that, and can we also try this and flip the sides that you're on on stage? Um, so there's something really magical about having so many people who are uh, so brilliant and coming from their own perspectives and just being able to tweak. How many people are involved in the cast? Six. Anyone playing multiple roles? <laughs> sure are. Sure Pre- are. Pretty much everybody in some way or other is uh, – yeah, we have four cast members who play basically all the townspeople. So they're playing tons of roles. But even myself and the woman who plays the the female protagonist, Ellen, um, do other things in the show that, that you'll be surprised by that are not just our characters. So what's happening backstage during the show? If, if you've got someone playing all – four people playing all the townspeople, is it still Sand Rock? Is the town still – The town is still Sand Rock, okay. yes. So you've got the – Four people playing the entirety of Sand Rock. What's it like backstage? Barely controlled chaos is what it's like backstage. It's 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 wonderful, but it's it it is its own play itself. At some point, we'll have to film everything that happens back there, and it will be just as watchable as what's happening in front. You know, whether it's it came from outer space or the movie Them, which was about giant ants, or any of these fifties sci-fi. I'm going to say the word classics. There's a at the heart of it, no matter how cheesy the effects are, there's there's sort of an existential hand-wringing going on. Who else is out there? Who's watching us? What's next? And I know it's zany, but do we have some existential questions in this? Oh, for sure. We have a very existential group of artists working on this, so that definitely brings part of it. But yeah, I think what makes this work is that there are some really big central questions. Um, and that's why, you know, I go right back to Ray Bradbury, one of my favorite writers, um, to say that he's tackling big things. And uh, there's something fun about coming in the front door with comedy and and madness and having something, uh, being let out the back door into a different world and having a slightly different perspective on how to think about things. Laura Braga is the director of It Came from Outer Space on stage at Theater Squared beginning tonight. We also talked with cast member Christopher Calais-Jones. It Came from Outer Space is written by Joe Kenosian and Kellen Blair. The production runs through September 18th. You can learn more at theater2.org. KUAF is giving away two VIP tickets to Format Festival, a new three-day festival uniting the worlds of art, music, and technology, September 23rd through the 25th in Bentonville. VIP tickets include exclusive access to the VIP lounge, food, drinks, and concierge services. The winner will be announced during the noon edition of Ozarks at Large on Friday, September 16th. KUAF.com for more information and to enter to win. Things change on Dixon Street in Fayetteville, hardly unusual for a street adjacent to a major college campus. Some of the changes we may not like, miss those cheeseburgers at Boardwalk and the Deluxe, but some can be quite engaging. The new art court by Dixon Street Liquor is a basketball court, but it appears to be a court fully placed onto a mural. The sweeping mix of public play and public art is an experiment of sorts. We asked Molly Ron, the CEO of Experience Fayetteville, to come to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio to tell us how the art court came to be. The Tyson Family Foundation approached Experience Fayetteville um, in 2020, and we began talking about this project, and it was really their their idea and um, a concept that would allow us to pilot what it would be like to have an experiential public-private partnership space um, downtown. So uh, we have wonderful parks in our city, and um, but, but this is something unique. This is something different that we don't already have. And in advance of the Ramble, which at the time was the uh, we were calling it the Cultural Arts Corridor, we started thinking, you know, that is unique in that the upper part of the Ramble is really this opened. Um, unprogrammed space. People are going to interact with it differently than they interact with a regular park. And what is something we can do that is fun and that is authentic for Fayetteville 
that allows us to practice that type of programming. So uh, the Tyson family members and the Tyson Family Foundation had the idea for this art court, and it was just too fantastic of an opportunity for Experience Fayetteville not to be um, not to be involved. This is a basketball court. It's open to the public. It is open to the public. It is free. Um, it is with intent, not heavily structured. So there, you know, there is no reservation process. You can't book it ahead online. You show up. You bring your own basketball, um, and you play. It's on Dixon Street. It's on Dixon Street. Where, it's in the old Dixon Street Theater. Or, or the landing strip, where the landing strip used to be. You know, that is a little bit before okay. my time. So, so this, this is where Dixon Street Theater used to be. Yeah. And that's pretty that, – that's a significant – I mean – Yeah, iconic and, yeah. A, and, a, and, a, and a great location. And um, the Tyson Family Foundation purchased, purchased the Dixon Street Theater, and unfortunately it was just beyond um, – you know, they weren't able to preserve it in the way that um, I think maybe even they would have liked to. But it's really incredible how much of it um, they have uh, kept and and how to work um, how to work this new design into the um, in in keeping with the original layout of the space. If people haven't driven by, I mean, it's a, it's an outside court. It is an outside court. Yes, and it has three, three walls. Three walls and three goals. Is there a goal on each wall? There is a goal on each wall. Yes. And then the um, north-facing side is open to Dixon Street. This is kind of fun. It's great. And yeah. I have to give a shout-out to the artists, too, because um, – so Black Box, um, a local um, just incredible uh, – they're just incredibly talented um, firm here in Fayetteville did the concept and did the artistic concept. And then the muralist who actually did the implementation of painting that design, um, also uh, Graham Edwards, many people know him, um, just a you know fantastic and great at, at what he does. So um, – it, people, you know, can certainly come for the art and come to experience the space and see it. And does this give us a bit of a hint of what the ramble will kind of? Um, no, I don't. I don't know that I would say that. I think what it does do is help people get comfortable with these types of spaces and these type of placemaking efforts in general. Um, but it's going to feel very different from the uh, ramble, just in terms of size. And it, you know, this has a pretty limited function, right? I mean, it is a basketball court. Um, but one thing we have noticed is people do sometimes get uncomfortable when we don't have all the answers to the questions for how this is going to go, right? Mm -hmm. So, for example, you know, 9 a.m. to dark, that's what I told you, that's what the hours are going to be initially. Um, Many people have said, are you ever going to be open at night? And my answer is probably, like, we would love to do that. And this is truly, in the truest sense of the word, a pilot project in that we expect that we are going to learn lessons. And we expect that and are planning for that in a month from now, two months from now, three months from now, we are going to know things that we don't know now about how people interact with the space, about how people don't interact with the space, what some of the challenges are. And we are going to, as we grow and as um, the project moves along, make changes as we go to better have a you know, better end user experience. Molly Ron is the CEO of Experience Fayville. She came to the Carver Center for Public Radio to talk about the art court last week. This is Ozarks at Large. I am Kyle Kellams inside the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. With me is Lee Wood, General Manager of KUAF. Hello, Lee. Hi, Kyle. In a moment, yes. we're going to change somebody's weekend plans. Yes, we are. We're going to give away... A full weekend pass, two full weekend passes to the Fayetteville Roots Festival, which begins Thursday evening. Tomorrow night. Yep. All right. But before we do that, okay. Uh, I just want to talk briefly about all the things KUAF is doing. Oh, wow. Briefly? Okay. Well, I mean, we're just going to skim here. Okay. We had a lunch hour last Friday. Yes. With Eddie Canyon. That yes. was great. We do one of those every month. We do. We're going to be at Crystal Bridges next month. Yes, for their Constitution Weekend, September 17th, we're going to have five hours of music that's been curated by our community engagement manager, Jasper Logan. So that'll be a sort of an accompaniment to all the other programming they're doing where they're highlighting the Constitution. So that's going to be very cool. I have been asked to talk about public radio and free speech that day as well. Oh, nice. Okay. And pick a piece of art. 
That uh, Oh, well, that sounds awesome. Yeah, and frightening. <laughs> then we're going to be at the Pryor Center. On September 27th. That is going to be a live recording. Of Natural Election, right? So, which is the podcast that's kind of uh, a collaboration between Daniel Carruth, Rachel Sanchez-Smith, and Matthew Moore, who are all reporters for Ozarks at Large, uh, about the midterm elections coming up. And this in particular live recording, we're really going to try to answer the question, does my vote even matter? Because I feel like we've got a lot of sentiment. We hear from a lot of people who feel this way. Um, and I think there's a lot of reasons that we can give why voting is essentially important right now. We are going to have more lunch hours. Yes. September 16th will be our next lunch hour here at in the lobby at KUAF. It'll be free music. It'll be free food. Yes. Uh, we'll keep doing it. And it's a great way to interact with the station. But if you miss it, which I understand it's during, you know, noon on a Friday, you can always go watch all the performances and the conversations. We record a conversation as well with the artist performing and with the owner or the chef of the restaurant that we feature that month as well, which is really cool. So it's a conversation often about growing a business or growing a career and the obstacles and and, uh, working together in this community to sort of, you know, build your career, build your art build your food. Um, And you can find all of those at KUAF's YouTube page and at KUAF.com. We're also uh, dropping off donated school supply items that our listeners have been bringing by the Giving Tree. This is true. So we're having a back to school edition of the Giving Tree again this year. And we've gotten amazing donations from our generous listeners uh, of backpacks and school supplies. And we're really trying to focus on uh, older students, so you know, junior high, high school, because they're often overlooked when uh, people are donating goods. But we've gotten a lot of supplies. We're going to be gathering up supplies through the end of the month. So thank you to everyone who's given, but you've got a little bit more time if you haven't been able to drop off anything. It is the Ozarks at Large stage oh. at the Fayetteville Public Library. Friday and Saturday, free music yes. all afternoon, including our live show Friday at noon on the radio. But please come if you can. Yes, please come. It's And we're so excited about this because this is the first time we've done it in three years. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be in the new main event hall at the Fayetteville Public Library, right. which is very exciting. So, yes, please come if you're able to Friday at noon um, and enjoy all of the community programming all weekend long that the Fayetteville Roots Festival offers. It's midday Friday. We've talked to your boss. It's okay. It's okay. It's Leave. okay. Yeah, yeah. Take you can the day. S- you can step out. Yes. I will give you a note. Who is going to get now, – now, it's all free, so you, anyone can come to that, but who's going to get to go to the paid stuff on us and Roots Festival? Okay. I'm so happy to announce that the winner of these uh, three-day weekend passes for this year's Fayetteville Roots Festival is Autumn Tolbert. Autumn Tolbert. Congratulations, Autumn. I hope you go, and I hope you have so much fun. Excellent. We'll be in touch. Okay. And you're about to go to Razor Bash. I am. On campus. Yeah, I'm about to head out the door. We're going to be handing out goodie bags and letting students know that we're here and that we've got things to offer, giveaways and all kinds of fun podcasts and ways to interact with the station. Lee Wood, general manager of the radio station that never sleeps, KUAF. (laughs) Thank you for your time. Thanks, Kyle. On the next Points of Departure, what does it mean to actually change the world? So I was thinking critically about that and our work as students with refugees, you know, we aim to advocate for refugees and looking at the life terror model. I was like, well, it'd be great if we can really equip students to feel like, you know, they can advocate for pro-refugee policy on their own policies in our government that would actually result in sustainable change through that kind of process of thinking. We started our first ever advocacy training program, which is actually happening right now. We'll hear from students about their experience with Arkansas Global Changemakers on the role of business in making meaningful social change, how young people can take action on issues in their community, and how international perspectives can help address local problems. That's Points of Departure, available now for free on KUAF.com or anywhere you listen to podcasts. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Winslow. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors today include Jacqueline Froelich and Dr. Karee Banton. Today's show produced by Timothy Dennis. Undisciplined is produced by Matthew Moore. And thanks to Lee Wood, our general manager, for popping into the Anthony and Susan Hoy News studio with us today. I'm Kyle Kellums. We will be back with you tomorrow at noon and 7.